fascinating people, insightful stories, an hour of enlightenment. This is Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. With the passage of the Immigration Act in 1924, the United States closed the door at Ellis Island. We went from allowing more or less unlimited immigration to a very harsh country-by-country quota, drastically cutting the number of Jews, Italians, Greeks, and Eastern Europeans that could enter the country and banned East Asian immigration completely for the next 40 years. Our guest today says it was the end of a decades-long campaign of the eugenics movement using that junk science that claimed certain races and ethnicities were morally and genetically superior to others, all to keep America from being overrun by non-white people. Sound familiar? Thank you so much, Daniel Okrent, for being here today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. It's my pleasure, Charlie. The new book is The Guarded Gate, Patricians, Eugenicists, and the Crusade to Keep Jews, Italians, and Other Immigrants Out of America. Check out his website, danieloakrent.com. His last name is spelled O-K-R-E-N-T. Well, Daniel was the first public editor of the New York Times, editor-at-large of Time Incorporated, and managing editor of Life magazine. He worked in book publishing as an editor at Knopf and Viking, and was editor-in-chief of General Books at Harcourt Brace. He was also a featured commentator on two Ken Burns series, and his books include Last Call, The New Book, and Great Fortune, which was a finalist for the 2004 Pulitzer Prize in History. Well, let's talk a bit about the similarities and the differences with the current era of immigration restrictions and all this bluster of anti-immigrant talk that's in the news, it seems, every single day, with the one that you were writing about almost 100 years ago, Daniel. Well, there are many, many differences uh, and a couple of very telling similarities. The similarities, the ones that matter, uh, the way it was the way that that the selection of immigrants was not based on the quality of an individual immigrant, but based on the perceived quality of the nationality or ethnicity or religion of the immigrant. As you said in the introduction, up until 1924, in the passage of this law, people came in pretty much as they wished to come in, but the determination. Uh, led by a group of Eastern aristocrats to keep out uh, Eastern Europeans and Southern Europeans was such that it enabled a law to be passed in 1924 that really divided the world by race, religion, and ethnicity. Now, we don't do it quite that way today, although I think that the president's uh, earlier uh, insistence on keeping immigrants from certain Muslim countries out of the, out, out, out of the U.S., uh, and now looking at Hondurans uh, or Mexicans or other uh, Central Americans as a group, uh, there is a real parallel there. It's not, we don't like this Honduran, we don't like all Hondurans. And that's when I think you get into trouble. It seems like we cycle back around in terms of the way that people talk about the other person that they don't want to come across the border. It was a little bit different in those days. What happened is there had been a campaign going since 1895 uh, to cut down on the number of Eastern European Jews and Italians primarily, but also others, uh, as you said, Greece, Romania, Hungary, Poland, uh, who were coming into the country. And four times laws passed Congress to uh, fundamentally restrict people from those countries by means of an educational test. Uh, Educational levels were much lower in those countries. The people who were coming were largely impoverished. Uh, Four times they passed 
Congress, and four times presidents vetoed them. And it was not until the middle of the 1910s that the anti-immigration forces seized on another idea. They seized on this idea of eugenics and, what, and applied it to national groups. It was, it's, some, it's something that has become known as scientific racism. But at the time, what it was was the presumed proof that existed from scientists that said these people were genetically inferior and therefore would mess up the American, would corrupt the American bloodstream. And this culminated in 1921, Calvin Coolidge, in an article in Good Housekeeping magazine of all places, he said, now that science has proven, proven that biological laws, biological laws, he said, now that these biological laws have proven that these people are inferior, we must have legislation to keep them out of the country. And two years later, he had that legislation. Well, Daniel, was there an outcry from the grassroots of the United States for this kind of thing to, to close the borders? Or was this really just this small handful uh, of people that were trying to influence how people thought about the issue and then reflecting it back to them? I think it was a, a lot of the latter, particularly if you remember that the years we're looking at are right after World War One, when the demonization of much of Europe at that time uh, was nearly complete, and the idea of, of foreigners uh, in general wasn't terribly welcome at, the, at that time. So, yeah, there 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 was anti-European feeling in the, in the U.S. But but what these people realize is that, that by applying these so-called principles of science it wasn't discriminatory it wasn't a matter of racism it wasn't a matter of being of anti uh being against a certain religion no please don't accuse us of being discriminatory it's science that says this and that was really what uh kind of carried the day as you were uh, researching your new book talk about what you found that made you want to focus the guarded gate so specifically on the scientific angle of of the immigration debate daniel well, it was so interesting, Charlie, going back to the origins of eugenics. It, it starts in the UK uh, in the middle of the 19th century, 1860s, really right out of the work of Darwin, of all people. You know, once Darwin established that evolution proved that we all did not come directly from Adam and Eve, which had been the broadly accepted idea at the time, uh, then therefore we're not all brothers. We're not all related to each other. Uh, we come from different places and we come from different family lines. And therefore, some people are better than other people. That idea was at the, at the very root of it. Then a man named Francis Galton, who was Darwin's first cousin, he came up with the, the word eugenics and the idea that if we only bred the best to the best, then England would be a much better country as a result. And he uh, actually proposed a, a really crazy idea that you would find the 5,000 best young people in Great Britain, match them off in state-arranged marriages, have the, the wedding itself presided over by Queen Victoria in Westminster Abbey, and then pay these people 5,000 pounds a year so they wouldn't have to work for a living. They could get busy making better Britons. Yikes. It was an, kind of a nutty idea. Um, by 1905, 1910, when this leapt across the Atlantic, soon it was taken up in the other direction. If we want to get the best breeding the best, maybe we should stop the worst from breeding at all. And thus the eugenics movement in the U.S. was born. And the principle of who's better and who's worst was soon applied in a book published in 1916 to ethnic groups. Europe was divided. 
said the author of this book, a man named Madison Grant, who happened to be the man who saved the Redwoods. He was America's greatest conservationist. Uh, he, he said there were three ethnic groups in, in Europe, ranked from top to bottom, the Nordics, the Alpines, and the Mediterraneans. And he said, we know from science, he insisted, that the breeding between any two groups, that the result of the, that, the progeny, will revert to the lower of the groups. So the breeding between a noble Nordic and an all right Alpine would yield an Alpine. And breeding between an Alpine and a lowly Mediterranean would yield a Mediterranean. And he said, the breeding of any of the three European groups and a Jew will yield a Jew. And this was the kind of non-science science science, uh, that carried the day. Well, it's just this quasi-scientific reasoning that just, it's so nutty as we listen to it through our ears today. And and yet, you know, a number of the eugenics advocates were well-intentioned people, as you mentioned, and they had some good ideas that actually were mixed in there. Even more than that, they were well-credentialed. This was not a fringe movement. Um, Courses in eugenics were taught throughout the American higher education system. Some of the primary uh, uh, drivers of the uh, eugenic idea uh, came from such institutions as the American Museum of of Natural History in in New York, uh, the Carnegie Institution of Washington, faculty uh, uh, and entire departments at Princeton and at Johns Hopkins. Uh, This was almost a scientific consensus of the period. So it wasn't a matter of, you know, cranks or just, you know, here are these politicians distorting things. There was this belief that science was behind it. How did they really get the attention of everyone to really get them? Was it because people were less educated at the time than, than we are today? That I just can't imagine eugenics really grabbing people hold on a mass scale today. Well, you have to realize this, a a couple of things. First, science only knows what it knows today. It doesn't know what it's going to learn tomorrow. And at the time, it seemed to be solid science. Uh, It was only in 1900 that Gregor Mendel's paper on eugenics, on genetics, was published and the idea of dominant genes and recessive genes. So the whole idea of genetics as a science is brand new, but it's adopted by leading uh, investigators, uh, leading scholars at major institutions because the, uh, Mendel, the, the Mendelian idea is real, it's valid, but then the attempt to adapt it to humans, to switch from the color of pea plants to the moral and intellectual quality of a human being, that was a rather large leap, but it made sense in the context of the time. There were very few people in the academy who uh, were forthrightly, uh, openly against it. And some of them were discredited because among them was the great anthropologist, Franz Boas, and he was discredited because they said, well, he's Jewish. No wonder he feels this way. And certainly, as I say, oh, we're more educated today. It feels like when we have things like we had with the, the march in Virginia and them spouting these anti-Jewish slogans right out of the Nazi playbook, it feels like the things that they were saying 95 years ago about Jews and Italians bubbled back up in the Internet today. Well, you know, they did not have the, I'd hate to use this word, the advantage, but they, they did not have the experience of the concentration camps and the Holocaust to look on. Uh, so that when we hear people chanting these phrases at, in Charlottesville, uh, it raises a chill because we know what the Nazis did. And there was no comparable, I mean, the, people have been brutal to people for, for, for millennia, but there was no comparable race-based, obvious uh, attempt to destroy an entire race. In fact, it's interesting that you raise it. Uh, many of the Nazi eugenics 
eugenicists, uh, uh, genetic leaders, had collaborated, had worked with the American eugenicists. They were uh, in constant touch at academic conferences. They traveled back and forth to see each other long before Hitler, long before the so-called final solution came up. Uh, but there was a logical connection between the eugenic idea and eventually the Nazi idea. And it was not until uh, Hitler's intentions became clear by the mid to late 30s that American universities and scientific institutions began to realize, oh my God, look what we have done. We're responsible for this. Well, the immigration debate back then didn't really split neatly along the, the left-right divide the, the way it does today, does, did it, Daniel? Oh, not, not at all. In fact, one of the, the surprising things to me that I learned in my, my uh, re- research on this is that the eugenic idea was very warmly embraced by many progressives. And in fact, the single individual who financed the anti-immigration movement more than anybody else, a man named Joseph Lee in Boston, he was the leading progressive philanthropist of his era, supporting voting rights for black people, uh, building hospitals in the slums. When he was chairman of the Boston School Committee, he made certain the school stayed open at night so that the immigrants could be uh, uh, could learn English, uh, and then privately he was writing letters to friends explaining why he was spending so much of his vast fortune on this campaign. He said such things as, "If we don't do this, then America would become a dago nation." That was his phrase. And in another letter, uh, he said, "Soon Europe will be drained of all its Jews to its benefit, no doubt, but not to ours." And this was a man that by any other standard, you would say he's you know, the finest citizen we could find. Was there any opposition really with any power? Was this view pretty just universal across the board? Well, the ethnic groups themselves, immigrant ethnic groups, uh, opposed it. Um, uh, not just those who were, who were uh, uh, singled out for it, but even a lot of Irish-American Irish politicians. Uh, the, the eugenic idea was not applied to them because they had been here too long and they already had votes, so you couldn't, get, couldn't work, work against them that way, but also because they came from the British Isles. Uh, yet they, were, they had immigrant memories. They had the memory of what they had been through, what they had been put through when they came uh, to the U.S. in the 1840s and 1850s. Uh, largely, uh, you saw the opposition to this coming from immigrant groups and a very, very few others uh, who understood the American idea and the American ideal uh, rather better than these uh, scientific racists. Well, even as all this was mainstreamed, as you mentioned, the White House was, was not on board for quite a while, at least you know, publicly. Well, why, why was that? Why, what were they afraid of? Well, there were a few things. Um, uh, for one thing, one, one of the groups that supported the, uh, the immigration restriction movement, if not the eugenic angle of it, was labor, the AFL, uh, American Federation of Labor. Uh, labor is always against immigration because immigration inevitably lowers wages. You're bringing in people who are willing to work for less money, particularly in an era when there was no such thing as a minimum wage and there were no uh, Fair Labor Practices Act. So, uh, you know, the labor is opposing it um, rather assiduously, and labor has increasingly an increasingly important role in, in the political life. But apart from that, um, the votes that the immigrants had, had the, the, as they became citizens, got the right to vote, um, that was very important to the, uh, uh, the people who were running for office. To Woodrow Wilson, who was hardly a, a paragon of tolerance, um, he vetoed this uh, restriction bill twice because he knew that he needed those votes, that the Democratic Party was becoming the party of immigrants. 
Well, one person who eventually did go along and voted for the quota system when he was in Congress is a name that at least people know the airport name, Fiorello LaGuardia. And it just, well, again, you know, LaGuardia is an interesting case. He didn't actually vote for the final bill. He made an interesting and, and kind of scary argument. LaGuardia was half Italian, half Jewish, uh, and he, was a, the, the, he represented the most ethnically mixed congressional district in America. He was the immigrant's best friend. But in a rather desperate effort to persuade the anti-immigrationists that he could be on their side, he said, well, we need to let the Europeans in, but let's keep the Asians out. So it's always, you know, you move over one step to protect your own people. Well, we better find somebody else that we can look down on. And LaGuardia, much to the discredit of his otherwise sterling reputation, used this argument. And uh, the, the, there was a, uh, virtually no debate, no public debate on the exclusion of Asians. And, uh, the, even there's a one horrible story about a man named uh, uh, Bhagat uh, Jaipur Singh from Washington State. He'd come to the U.S. in, ni- in 1913. Uh, to study at Berkeley. Um, he enlisted in the U.S. Army during World War I. When he finished his Army service, he applied for and received citizenship. And then his citizenship was taken away from him because he was not white. Well, he said, I am white. And it went to the Supreme Court. And in 1923, a unanimous Supreme Court, which included the great liberals, uh, Louis, Louis Brandeis and Oliver Wendell Holmes, found against him. And they took his citizenship away. Well, why do you think the anti-immigration feeling that, that you write about in The Guarded Gate d- died out after about four decades? Well, I think that the Nazi death camps had a lot to do with it. Um, you know, we see what has happened. Not, and it's not just to what happened to the Jews and the Holocaust, but, you know, there were, uh, best estimates are 300,000 Greeks whom the Nazis starved to death and 200,000 Serbs who were murdered by Nazi death squads. Uh, the desperate poverty that, that uh, uh, raked uh, all of Eastern and Southern Europe from the, you know, from the Depression th- through the years after the war and the, you know, the so-called bloodlands where, where Europe was devastated. Uh, you know, a lot of people of a lot of different ethnic groups suffered really, really badly. Um, but it really isn't until the civil rights movement of the 1960s that the idea of getting rid of the quota system really gains, gains a lot of traction. Um, and I guess another thing that had to do with it is at the time of the Cold War, the Eastern Europeans were behind the so-called Iron Curtain, and that was our enemy, and the, you know, the Russians were our enemy during the Cold War, and we wanted people to be able to leave uh, Russian control and come to the U.S. So these things played together. In 1965, Lyndon Johnson passed, uh, signed the law that ended the quota system. And it certainly occurs to me as I hear different folks in the mainstream media or the alternative press talk about these issues today that I, 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 our ideas of who's white and who's not, you know, has, has changed over the centuries. And I think, you know, about the people who are their ancestors and maybe they wouldn't even be sitting in front of that TV camera today had we had the restrictions in place that they want today back then. Absolutely the case. I mean, my own family, my my, uh, grandfather was a physician who came from Romania in 1922, right before the quota. And only because he was able to come before the quota was he then later to to bring over my mother, um, his daughter, uh, under what's come to be known as chain migration. Um, Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation, would we?
No, we would not. Well, Daniel Okrent is our guest today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. The new book is The Guarded Gate, Patricians, Eugenicists, and the Crusade to Keep Jews, Italians, and Other Immigrants Out of America. Check out his website, danieloakrent.com. His last name is spelled O-K-R-E-N-T. Thank you so much for being here today. It's been my pleasure, Charlie. Thank you.